Hey everybody, welcome to the Strong Towns podcast. This is the week ahead, and uh, Rachel is. Uh, we I, I don't know what we were thinking. We said, you know, go ahead and and take some time off if if you must. <laughs> so today is Yuri and I, uh, Yuri Artabiz. Hey, welcome to the podcast, Yuri. Thank you, Chuck. I'm happy to be here from Vancouver. How yeah. are things up in How are things up in uh, the Great North? It's going quite well. We've, summer seems to have finally arrived. We had a really beautiful spring, but then a horrible July. And oh. uh, the sun, but the last week, the sun's been out again. So it's been nice. We've, uh, we, we, we usually have like this six-week window in uh, June and July where the mosquitoes are so bad you can't, in a lot of places you can't go outside. I mean, it's just horrible. And um, now... Uh, that, that that hasn't been like we didn't have that this summer, and I thought, oh, it's maybe it's a, a cyclical thing. Oh no, it was just delayed. <laughs> so, <laughs> like the last the last two weeks have just been, oh my gosh, I can't believe all these mosquitoes are just terrible. But um, they'll go away soon. We're uh, we're at the part of the summer too where the for some reason now the temperature has uh, has moderated, so we're getting. You know, it lows in the 50s at night, like the upper 50s, and then highs in the mid-70s. And this is just, this is usually like um, end of August, early September weather. We're having a couple weeks early, and it's it's just heavenly. It's so nice. Well, you guys, you guys don't have the big temperature fluctuations where we, like we do here. Um, no. What's a normal high for August? Um, normal high is anywhere in the mid twenties Celsius, which brings us into the mid seventies. Maybe we'll get a few 80 degree days, but that's pretty rare. Um, so yeah, it's pretty, uh, pretty temperate here. Last week I was in Iowa. Uh, d- don't know how much interaction you had with that. I-, I wound up having to drive, uh, well, not having to getting to, I guess it was about five hours from here to, uh, Mason city, which is a, a really great place. Uh, I've been there a, a couple times now in my capacity with Strong Towns. And they had a Main Street downtown coordinator um, na- uh, statewide meeting. And I was able to give a couple of presentations. One, the, the curbside chat, and then another one on parking, which is really fascinating. Yuri, I wanted to ask you, have, have you ever been to Iowa? I have not been to Iowa, no. Okay. It's one of the states I haven't been to. Uh, why not? I mean, Iowa's such a draw. Um, I actually have this this slide in the curbside chat where I, I'm talking about the desperation phase of the suburban experiment. And, and I've got a picture of the Field of Dreams stuff from the, from the movie Field of Dreams. And I say, you know, Build It and They Will Come is a great movie plot, uh, but a, it's a terrible economic development strategy. And it used to be kind of like a laugh line, you know, like a little bit of a, a joke. Um, but I realized that it was because I was speaking to mostly Midwest audiences. When you get out of the Midwest, there's a lot of people who, you know, maybe don't remember the movie Field of Dreams or it doesn't mean as much to them. I got, it, it, it like, you know, brought the house down uh, in, in Iowa. I mean, we were literally an hour from where the, you know, the field, the real Field of Dreams is. So that was a, that was a big deal. You got to go, man. Hey, it's on, it's on my list. One day I do want to visit all 50 states, so we'll get there eventually. I, I, I have uh, two left, and they're the two you would suspect 
uh, as being the most difficult um, for someone in Minnesota to get to. I, I've never been to Alaska, which I, I think is a, a tragedy. I, I really want to go. And I've never been to Hawaii. Um, we've had some people inquire in both of those places, whether I would come and, and speak. And absolutely, I would love to uh, visit both of those places. We've just not been able to, to make it work. And I've, I've not found an excuse in my private life to make it to either of those places either. So yeah, I guess I don't have a Disneyland there. So <laughs> uh, uh, you're cruel. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you're so happy I brought you to Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, it was, a, it was a great. It was a. I must say, it was my best staff meeting ever. Exactly, it was. It was the the greatest staff meeting we've ever had. I, I'm. We're chatting with the board because we've got a we've got to have a board meeting here. Um, and we were talking about like where to meet because you know we've got board members all over the country. And my idea was that we would fly into Chicago. And maybe spend a day in Chicago, but then get on the Empire Builder and take the Amtrak to Seattle. And uh, John Reuter lives in Seattle. And I thought, well, you know, then we can end up at his place and he won't have to fly home. Um, and, you know, I, 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 they thought that, that sounded like a cool way to have a meeting. I, I kind of thought so, yeah. too. I'm like, if we're going to. If we're going to do it, um, you know, it wouldn't be that. It wouldn't be more expensive than flying everybody someplace and what have you. Uh, and you get to, you know, see some of the cool parts of the country and spend some time on a train and all, you know, all the good stuff. Yeah, no, that's – train trips can be fun, especially with a group of people. Yeah. Now, I today um, we're kind of uh, – part of this week is going to be getting back into the Anti-Fragile book club I know Rachel has a bunch of other stuff scheduled and, and I've got a, a few things that I'm going to write outside of the anti-fragile stuff. But we start off today with two posts uh, kind of in that wheelhouse. The first one uh, was one that I wrote for today um, and then referred to in an older post on the barbell strategy. Are, are you familiar with this concept of the barbell strategy, Yuri? Um, loosely, yeah. I mean, from reading anti-fragile and reading your work, I've I'm familiar with it. I, uh, yeah, I can't say grasps grasp all the nuances of it. Of it, it is but. It, it is an obsession of mine, actually. I have to say, since the first time I, I heard of this, which was like in, I don't know, like 2004 or something like that, I, I've been obsessed uh, with this idea of you know, having a, 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 a dual risk approach. And, and the barbell strategy as, at its essence is an extreme risk aversion combined with uh, kind of a, a, a flagrant disregard of risk at, at both ends of your, and, and Nassim Taleb set this up as, you know, part of our portfolio, but he certainly, you know, ascribes it to all aspects of life. He, he actually, when he was running a hedge fund, uh, would have 90, I want to say like 95, 96% of their portfolio was just in cash, like you could not lose money. It would not go down because it just was money. And then they would take that small remaining percent, four or 5%, and they would invest it in out of the money options, which from a, 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 a an investment standpoint are, uh, you're, you're basically betting on large moves in the market, which don't happen very often. But according to Taleb, and I think statistically this has shown this to be true, it happens more often than people think it would happen. 
you know, we, we do these standard deviation analyses and say, well, you know, this is an event that should happen once every 500 years and it happens, you know, once every seven. And so what he realizes that if I keep almost all my money in cash, I, I have very little downside risk. Like I, I, I cannot lose half my wealth because it's, you know, it's in cash. It's not going to be eroded away. But if I have this small amount in these very high upside kind of things, things that can gain, you know, 10 times, 50 times, a hundred times, a thousand times in a very short period of time, then I've got all the upside potential without the downside risk. I found this to be just brilliant. And I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how cities could do this. And I kind of laid it out today in this blog post, kind of contrasting three, what, what I called riskless. They really aren't riskless, but, but three like very small risk types of things cities can do combined with three very high risk things that cities could do. The, the, the ones that were low risk being, you know, kind of bigger ticket items, but, but having very little downside potential. Well, the, the low the, the high risk ones being very small things like tactical urbanism kind of things, the things that, you know, you invest a buck and you could get $10 back, um, little tiny things. I don't know if you had a reaction to that or not, or if, if that made sense to you or, or what your thoughts on that are, Yuri. Um, generally it makes sense. I guess what was, what I was taking, I'm still kind of gad, uh, wrapping my head around is actually your example number one and the guaranteed return low risk about new housing subdivision. And, uh, you basically said new housing, make it low risk. And then you have a picture of a sprawling greenfield suburb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And basically what I hear is, Hey, if you're building new housing, like why not just bulldoze the, the, uh, you know, prairies and build suburban sprawl instead of maybe a riskier in you know infill developments in town so that's kind of my only uh my big point just the picture and the uh comment yeah, yeah. That you're making yeah it's interesting because you know that particular example um one of the things that because i originally wrote this back in 2013 one yeah. of the things that I, I was seeing a lot was that developers would come in and they would build these things and then they would turn it over. They'd, they'd put in all the utilities and everything and then they'd turn it over to the city to maintain. And the cities were saying, you know, well, well this is great. You know, we, we don't have to spend any money and we get all this growth. And um, what I said is, you know, wh why don't you sit down as part of this transaction and figure out how much tax base you would actually need uh, to make this stable for you over the long term? And then, you know, not take it over until the tax base reach that. Because generally the, the, the thing that cities will do is say, well, you know, when you, uh, after you build the road, we'll take it over. Or after you put in the sewer, we'll take it over. Like it's an, it's an automatic thing, not tied to the tax base. And the idea was, no, 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 you, you really should have a financial component to this. You should really say, you know, when you reach this threshold, um, now we will, you know, now it's not a, a risky investment for the city. Now it's not a risky investment for the public. We'll take it over. Uh, I think as you point out, and, and rightly so, if you have that kind of threshold for a lot of, you know, auto-oriented style of development, what you find is that you never reach that threshold, right? Like it, it never generates enough wealth to actually sustain itself. And yeah, that, 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 that picture 
is perhaps uh, suggesting that it could at some point when really it's it's not a viable thing. Well, the other my other perspective is when I was living in Phoenix, I mean, the real estate market there and the type of housing wasn't so much determined by local developers or even local governments, but really by national and international banks and financial institutes. So what got developed and what got planned was basically decided in, you know, New York City and London and Hong Kong, um, because based on pro forma risk evaluations and they said, you know, this is the type of housing that's sold here in the past and we'll give you this much, we'll give a developer this much alone for this to do this. But if you want to develop some sort of crazy creative walk up urbanism in downtown Phoenix, there's no way we're going to extend the risk to you. So right. the, the risk and reward was determined long before the city even got wind of the infrastructure needs and right. it over. It was, you know, and well, well far away from the town that was made. And that was a big city like Phoenix. I can imagine what a small town would be dealing with when they're, when Chase and, you know, a big international developer is beating on their door. There's no question. I, I do think, you know, that, that certainly is the, uh, the, the paradigm that the banks and the financial people use. Um, you know, th this is why it's important for the city to be doing their own risk assessment, which they'd never do because, you know, these places aren't going to invest money unless it's essentially risk-free or very low risk, or the risk is, uh, you know, pawned off on someone else through securitization or what, what have you. Uh, cities don't do that. Cities just accumulate risk all the time as like a standard way of approaching business. They just accumulate risks. It's interesting because in small towns, when you get the, the big money that comes in, it, it does swamp everything. It does, it does just dwarf everything. But you can get cities, you know, of 30,000, 40,000, 50,000 people, which are, you're starting to be not small. I think those places would still call themselves small townish, but you know, compared to like a city like Brainerd, where I live, it's 13,000, uh, you know, or the city I just moved from, which was 900, you know, the, the 50,000 is, is pretty small or pretty big. Those places you still do have, I, I think the predominant, uh, builder being a local contractor, you know, someone who is a, uh, you know, uh, someone who started out remodeling, you know, maybe a generation or two ago even, but now does a, a lot of the uh, the local work. And they, they rely on the federal financing and the, the big financing stuff, but they, they're, I think, m easier to turn or easier to, um, you know, change their practices than some of the big, uh, you know, the big commercial builders that have a, a certain approach. Although on the flip side, again, playing devil's advocate here, in the yeah. small towns, they don't have, you know I mean, doing the financial an an analysis, they might not have, if you only have a town of 900 people, the chance of having someone who knows how to do long-term financial an analysis for housing is, you know. It's impossible. It's is so impossible. hard. So yeah. that, it, that's the trade-off. I mean, it's kind of that big, you know, it's again, it's almost like the barbell strategy in a HR capacity. Bigger right. cities have more capacity and more staff to do the analysis. However, they also have more, less skin in the game, as Taleb would say, whereas the local communities have a lot of skin in the game, but they don't have necessarily the talent or the depth of talent that they might need to go up against a federal loan officer or a big developer.
And, and that to me, I, I, you're right. That to me is the greatest argument for a extreme risk averse strategy mm-hmm. when it comes to anything big. You know, the, the, a lot of times we look at ourselves as being savvy because we limit our, our, our risk to a degree, but we're still taking some, you know, we're in that middle zone. We're in the, the strode area of risk, right? Uh, but to me, I, I think what you've described is, is absolutely what the case is. I mean, you have cities that sometimes have a level of sophistication, but you cannot be guaranteed that that's going to, you know, continue with the next administration or with the next staff turnover or what have you. And a, a lot of times we set these things up under the assumption that everybody who comes after us will be at least as competent, if not way more, and maybe even a little bit lucky than we are today, instead of being extremely risk averse and kind of setting yourself up so you limit that downside. Mm-hmm. I want to I ask you uh, about what's going on on our social media stream you, you, I, I know we've chatted about this before, and and you know people are aware that you're out there, uh, you know, putting, posting, sharing our stuff, and, and helping to build those online communities. Talk a little bit about some of the stuff that's been uh, going on lately, some of the conversations, and what you've been seeing from from your your desk. Um. Well. As subscribers of the Strong Time newsletter know, we you know every week we do our week in review where Rachel posts the top five posts of the week, and then I usually pitch in the lot top five uh, top five social media shares. Um, but what normally happens is that's kind of the Monday to Friday stuff I share, um, and what normally gets lost is what happens over the weekend. And this weekend was a perfect example of that. Um, so on Saturday morning, so we use Buffer to schedule a lot of our posts on the weekend. So every time you see a post up, it's not me actually physically posting. It's me putting it in the feed. and over. So I do get weekends. Um, but over the weekend, I posted a, a post on um, Woonerfs, which are European shared roads. And it was by far the most popular post of the week, actually, both in terms of views and shares, but also in terms of comments. And I'm trying to pull it up now, but yeah, that was, it was fascinating. I mean, I, I really, uh, I, I it, it's, it's, it's interesting because it's one of those things that I think the planning profession could turn into a fad, you know, and, and, and kind of standardize in a really destructive way, you know, the, the way the planning profession did the, you know, the pedestrian mall and what have you. But uh, as a as a concept, you know, there's a there's a kind of implied customization for the place, and I just really I, I, I was very excited about the article, and I'm very excited about the direction. Well, I just found it interesting because it shows our the knowledge of our audience is that the discussion wasn't so much if it was a good or a bad idea. It quickly turned into what exactly is a wound orphan is that's not a wound orphan, you know, people were. Right. <laughs> People were like debating over whether, you know, their street was a wound earth or not, you know, they're talking about shared space and this and that. And I just found it kind of fascinating how people get into it. Um, I also found I have a personal interest in this and in that I live in a relatively new development in Vancouver and in not our main road, but off in between behind my building, there is a shared road or a road that was intended to be a shared road. Um, and it's meant to be basically a 
neighborhood road to get into people's parking garages and so people could connect with the rest of the neighborhood. Um, so they created it without curbs using the same material on sidewalk and the street um, and nice trees and little chicanes so cars can't speed through. And, you know, from an urban design ideal, it was great. Um, and then they went, then the lawyers got involved and they're like, well, you can't have pedestrians and, and uh, drivers mix. It's just even in Vancouver that can't happen. So they put up some pylons to separate or some bollards to separate the street and put up a few more planters and trees. So it's still pretty nice. But what those bollards do is they just take away like so cars use it as a road um, and they're driving at fast speeds down it. So it the design, this is one aspect that you're right, you have to get it almost perfect to make it work and it has to be perfect for that instance and so you can't take you know what works in Copenhagen and then plump it down into Manhattan or take what works in you know in uh, Hoboken and plunk it down in Palo Alto you need right. to, it's really you need a savvy type of design sensibility but it, it it defies and I guess this is you you're I'm totally agreeing with you. It defies what the DOTs like to do, which yeah. is create a standard plate. Um, you know, I, I we did some work on roundabouts a while back and showing how like the, the DOT in Wisconsin has a standard plate for roundabouts. And wherever they put them in, uh, here's how they build it. And they had like the blinged out. I, I think the video I did was called Pimped Out Roundabout. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you saw that one. Yes. <laughs> It's you know, they they have like all the decorative brick pedestrian facilities and decorative lights and it's in the middle of nowhere like the 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 sidewalk ends in a ditch and a, a field there's no chance that any pedestrians could ever be there yet that's their standard plate and I, I feel like the Wilners we could do the same thing to uh, if we you know if if we want to really Americanize them we'll. Make a make a standard plate and then go out and mass produce them in the dumbest way possible. Well, that and the all yeah, that's the one danger. And the other danger is like, well, we'll take a half a block and do it, or we'll do it on one block and then right. well, like there's there's an example someone left in the comments that they did it in a block at the end of a at the end of a street and it wasn't a success because no one was walking there. Well, basically, it sounds like there was no one was walking there because there was nowhere to walk around there. So. Right. Yeah, you can pimp, like, that's the other thing a lot of traffic departments will take. Oh, this block doesn't have much traffic. Let's test it out here. And, you know, it's kind of the catch-22. If people aren't going there, people aren't going to, you know, people aren't going there when it's a strobe. People aren't going to go in there when it's a nice walkable place either. Unless unless you do the other things, like get the businesses and the storefronts and, the and uh, you know, the people there. Yeah, They're not just going to walk down a block just because you put in some cobblestone and uh, put in yeah. a few benches. So this is a lot of, you know, and that's baby steps. And I know that, you know, going back to the barbell strategy, there's a lot of well-meaning transit um, planners and uh, urban planners who don't want to, who want to take the $5,000 approach to fixing their street because they don't want to risk redesigning an entire street. Um, but there's sometimes that you need to have, you know, again, it's that barbell. You have to find the time to pl- and the place to take the risk and build something. If you're going to do it, do it right because there's nothing worse than saying you're doing something and then and then not working out and then having 
your opponents having the political, you know, the political ammunition to say, see, we've tried that before and it didn't work. So let's go back to keep on building Strode's. So. Exactly. Rachel and I always talk about what we've been reading. You got any good books you've been working Uh, through? I honestly, I haven't been reading much lately and it's kind of rare for me. Um, but the reason I haven't been reading well, much books is because I've I've uh, started a new another part time job recently. Um, so for those of you out there who don't under- realize, I'm I'm work I work for Strong Towns part time. So in the other part of my life, I've been a consultant and doing other work for local public engagement and urban development issues. But recently, I was uh, hired on as the executive director of the Vancouver City Planning Commission. And what that means is my reading time lately has been focused on getting up to speed on that role. And the commission's, it's, my, it's over, it's about, I believe it's 96 years old. So there's a lot of reading to get caught up on in the history and the ins and outs of this group. Um, so that's what I've been focusing my time. But what I have been doing is because I've had to commute and commute for the first time in a while and my, my you know, my own, onerous mile and a half 20 minute walk commute um <laughs> it's you know hey, it, i have i have a shorter commute now than you man yeah it, it's it's my vlog and i have to and it's like uphill so it's <laughs> not a fun well it's not a bad commute in the morning by any means but uh the great thing is we also have bike share in Vic, or vancouver now so and there's a bike share uh station right outside city hall so i can i walk up up the hill to the office and then take grab the bike and bike down the hill. So it's a 20 minute walk and a five minute bike ride back. But, oh, now who, who brings the bike back up the hill then later? Well, there's people, there's keeners. And then there's, there's the, the one thing with bike shares, there's the balance. There's the every day there is some, well, the maintenance trucks come around and maintain the bikes and they also yeah. balance them out. But what would happen um, in bike share if everybody only biked downhill? Yeah, that would be uh, that'd be that, that's really hilarious. Well, what some I think Montreal, I'm not sure they still do it, but Montreal has the plateau, and it's they were one of the first cities in North America with a bike share, Bixie. And what they did is they, I think they offered either free rides or a discount if you take if you were take a bike from down in the uh, down by the river and uh, roll your bike up to the plateau. So there's ways, there's market mechanisms that you can use to sure, uh, sure. to encourage people to ride up. Or again, you know, when there's enough traffic and enough demand, you just get the rebalancing trucks or uh, yeah. to do it for you. But no, it is. Uh, it's one of the nice things about only the one way travel is uh, you can. Uh, and it's one of the things I love about not only bike share, but also car sharing as well, especially the car to go models. My wife and I can go out to a dinner party and drive there with, you know, when we're taking our casual or whatever, and then we can have a few glasses of wine and then either take a cab or take the bus back and not have to worry about, you know, how we're getting home and a designated driver. Right. Um, but my whole point of saying I am now commuting is that I'm also now listening to podcasts other than strong towns. And, uh, one of the ones I've been catching up on is a interesting podcast called Cities Alive. And it's a, done by a group called the Planning and Design Center in uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, in Canada. Um, and it's the first time I've actually heard of them. And they are a nonprofit organization that uh, is committed to improving planning and design, as their uh, name would suggest. 
but the, it's based on the proposition that people should know what's happening in their own community and have a hand in shaping their future. So it sounds very strong towns oriented. And then, so that's what kind of got me into it in the first place. And then I started looking at some of their back episodes. And last fall, they had a pair of episodes called Planning with Sense, meaning planning with pennies, basically. But there was kind of a double entendre on money and then common sense. Right. Right. And, uh, and the main thrust was like, it sounded like I was, you know, listening to the, your, uh, your long lost cousin because they were talking about how our current financing mechanisms are uh, working against our planning policies and politics and bankrupting a lot of our municipal, um, municipalities. And, uh, they looked again in mainly Canadian and mainly Ontario based cities, but, uh, but it was kind of fascinating. And then because, you know, we're Canadian, we always have to end on a bright side. Um, they also looked at how a depressed city is using tools and innovative tools to climb out of debt and, uh, and actually how the action of what I'll call a strong citizen are doing, you know, few key tactical things to improve it. And I, I just found it really fascinating to see it through a different lens and a Canadian lens, kind of hearing a lot of the strong towns, a message being echoed and resonated. So I know you like to, when you read, you like to get out of the uh, urban bubble and, but. Uh, yeah, I'll check that one out. But it's, I, I just, uh, I yeah. just did. It's pdcenter.ca and center spelled like a Canadian center, C-E-N-T-R-E. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I got there. It looks like they've got 12 episodes yeah. and uh, I'll check them out. They're on and iTunes then, too. So They have another, back, the other one, they have another two-part series called Planning with Politics, which also sounds pretty interesting and in how. Yeah. So those will be my, uh, what I'm listening to right now as I commute to work. And uh, yeah, so it's been, um, it's been kind of fascinating getting back into the outside, the, uh, the strong town's bubble, so to speak, because, right. you know, some things can be all consuming sometimes and it's nice to have a little bit of perspective. Now, now before we go, I've got a, I've got a history question for you. Sure. I, I was in uh, Ontario a couple of weeks ago and was having a, a really interesting conversation and, and, and found out that you guys have some, something up there called the war of the conquest. Can, are you familiar with this now? Uh, your Canadian history, the war war of the conquest. Not, no. Oh, the okay. I just looked it up. The Seven Years' War. Yes, oh, Seven Years' War. Yes. Yeah. So that was the reason I'm not super familiar with it. Is that's kind of Eastern Canadian history and right now. Now, hang on a sec. Yeah. This is from an American from American history. This is called the French and Indian War, and and I, here's here is the fascinating thing is that. In my history class, uh, French and Indian War, I, I found, you know, for me, it was like we fought off the French and the, the Native Americans who kind of joined together to cause some trouble up north. And, you know, we, we had to go and bloody your noses a little bit. That's not exactly the way history's told for the Seven Years' War if you're Canadian, right? No. Um, well, this is, yeah, it's very... Uh... Now, from the Canadian perspective, it was basically the British conquest and how the, you know, the... <laughs> the, the way it was explained to me is that, uh, yeah, we, we fought off the colonies. Yeah. The, the, you guys were coming up to take us over, and we ha we fought you off, and it's a great victory. I, I, I want to say it was in St. Catharines. There's a big... Um, 
there was a big statue there celebrating the uh, the War of the Conquest, and I was like, "We, what was the War of the Conquest?" And I said, well, that was when we beat you guys. That was when yeah, we beat, we we beat off you land hungry, uh, you know, yeah. uh, empire building Americans. I'm like, I I don't remember that. That was a French Indian War. No, that was yeah. No, that's definitely the, yeah the war we beat off the Americans, and then the other part of the history is a little bit later. Um, the War of 1812 is also when Canada right. burnt down the White House um, and why it was painted white. And so that's how we learned the history. That's how we learn history up here. Anytime Canada has any victory. And of course, all this wasn't Canada at the time. It was the British Empire. Right. Was um, British Canada Empire, was right. a colony. Um, so um, so it's funny. We talk about the Canadian, the great, how Canadians have beat the Americans not once, but twice. <laughs> um but yeah, in no, reality, it's, it's uh, a little more complicated than that. Well, I, I, I want to end by in the podcast by just acknowledging that uh, that Canada is a, a great military power that has beaten the United States twice. And, uh, you know, I, I'm glad we're still friends. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. Thanks, everybody.